Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hi, and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. This is episode number 175. I'm your host, Valerie George, and on today's episode, it's a mega episode, we're going to cover a new story we found interesting in the cosmetics industry, and then we'll answer your beauty questions about sunscreens. We'll cover, are sunscreen sprays even legal? What is the level of SPF we should use on our face every day? Why hasn't the FDA approved the new sunscreen filters available in Europe and Asia, like Univol and Tinosorb? When can we expect those to be available in the U.S.? And is there a device for at-home use that can show you if your SPF is applied appropriately? First, I'd like to say hi to the co-host of the show, Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry. Hello, Valerie. Hey, you know what? I was listening to NPR this morning, and I think I found a new name for me to go by on the show. Instead of calling me Perry, you can just start referring to me as Chunky Pickup. Chunky Pickup? Tell me more. Where is that from? That sounds awful. I don't... (laughs) I don't know. Actually, I made the mistake of uh, making that joke to my wife this morning and it just did not go over well. Not, it was <laughs> not a good name. I don't recommend it. It's not you. It doesn't look like you. <laughs> it was from uh, a story about Tesla and they were talking about their electronic pickup cars and the problem with the pickups was that they were called chunky pickups. So they haven't been much of a hit. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that. Well, I think on our show, our listeners are listening to two cosmetic chemists with the cleanest teeth in the world. I don't know if that's some sort of world record. Are you interested in looking in that? Uh, no, I, but I, I think you're right because... We both had dental appointments today. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Uh, I had a clean clean bill of health, no cavities. I think you can see how white my teeth are now. Uh, indeed, indeed. Uh, and, and mine went well too, although I'm always a little suspicious of dentists because... Somehow they always will find something. They're like, oh, that was fine last time, but this time, I think you need... I, I think what they don't like, because they always go in there and they say, you should probably get those wisdom teeth taken out. I'm like, and I've had them for yeah, as long as I've had them, and they've been fine, and there's no cavities there. just seems a little suspicious to me. Yeah, well, I actually have a dismissive dentist. I think you'd really like him. Oh, really? He actually prefers to do cleanings himself on me. Huh. Um, I think he just does it the day that I come in. I, I go in on a, a Tuesday usually, and he never finds anything. And he's always like, yeah, it's good. He's just so dismissive. He's like, ah, you can get away with coming in once a year. He just seems like he doesn't want to do any work, which I think is uh, great if it's really the truth and I have beautiful teeth, then sure, yeah. Well, they look good, at least over the Google Hangouts that we're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, let's talk beauty science news. This is actually a hybrid beauty science news and listener question put together. While this article that we're going to talk about today is nearly one years old, I think it's still relevant because we often get questions about coconut oil and hair and skin benefits. In 2017, Allure posted an article, Does Coconut Oil Dry Out Your Hair? It wanted to explore why some people feel the benefits of coconut oil on hair while others are left feeling with their hair like straw, like there's no benefit and it actually makes the hair feel worse when they apply coconut oil. And since coconut oil is still all the rage, many swear by it in their beauty ritual, I thought we'd look at what it's actually doing on hair. Yeah, good idea. 
Coconut oil is actually confusing in the name because when we think of oil, we think of a liquid that's insoluble in water and you see these droplets floating on it. But coconut oil is not just a liquid, it's also a solid. So if it's a warm day or warm in your house above 72 degrees Fahrenheit, it's actually a liquid. But when it goes below that temperature and it's a little chilly out, coconut oil is a solid, yet we still call it an oil. Yeah, we have solid coconut oil here in Chicago. I've actually had coconut oil in LA fall out on me and the lid was loose and it poured everywhere. Uh, so oops, I have the opposite oops. of that problem usually. But the temperature at which an oil, fat, or butter starts to solidify, so when coconut oil's a liquid and it's turning into a solid, we actually call it a teeter point. You can identify this visually when an oil starts to cloud when it's melted and clear and it starts to cloud as the temperature drops. That's its teeter point. Typically, oils have a teeter of below 40.5 degrees Celsius. Fats have a teeter above 45.5 degrees Celsius. An easy way to think of that is oils solidify when they're cold and fats are still solid when they're warm. Butters have a teeter in between 20 degrees Celsius and 40.5 degrees Celsius. All of these formats, oil, fat, butter, they're all chemically composed of the same thing, triglycerides in varying ratios, and those contribute to not only its physical form, but its teeter point as well. So, And I think in general, fats typically come from animal sources, whereas butters and oils come from plant sources. That's a, a generalization, but yes, yeah. So what does all this have to do with coconut oil? If we look at different oils, apricot kernel oil being one that's commonly used in skin and hair products, it has a teeter of zero to six degrees Celsius, which translates to 32 degrees to 42 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty chilly before it starts to cloud. So that means that apricot is generally gonna be liquidy, right? Liquidy, and then if you get it to that point, maybe put it in your refrigerator, it may start to cloud a little bit. It's not gonna become solid because your refrigerator is not below 32, it's not gonna go all the way, but you'll start to see it straightening. So coconut oil has a teeter point of 22 degrees Celsius or roughly 72 degrees Fahrenheit when it starts to solidify. And boy, does it solidify quickly. I don't think anyone's seen a whole lot turbid in between, um, but once it starts to go solid, it does. So my point here is when you apply apricot kernel oil to the hair, it's likely always going to be in its liquid oil form because it doesn't even start to solidify until the freezing point. And unless you're joggling through Chicago in the month <laughs> of February, it's likely going to stay in an oily format on your hair. Conversely, coconut oil is only a liquid at pretty warm temperatures. So if you take some out of the jar with your hand and you rub it together, you get a lot of warmth and it's gonna melt. You apply it to your hair, but shortly after being on your hair, the ambient temperature around your hair drops, and so the coconut oil is going to solidify into a film on the hair. And this can happen rather quickly, and that's actually what I think is contributing a lot to the dry feel of the hair fiber. So for some people, coconut oil can penetrate very quickly if the hair is porous, and you know, I'll put in air quotes, open to accepting the coconut oil, but where penetration is slower, or it's colder outside, I think that a film is actually being formed on the hair because of that temperature difference. And that's what people are contributing to that straw-like character versus all these theories about protein loss and all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, very interesting. Coconut oil is one of the ones that has been proven to be able to penetrate a hair fiber. There was some research done by the Textile Research Institute, which looked at coconut oil, sunflower oil, and mineral oil, and they found that coconut oil was really, of those three, the only one that would penetrate into the fiber. Yeah, and it it can. I just think that some people, you know, of course, it's not 100% going in. I think that depending on ambient temperature, it is going to solidify and leave a film on the hair. And for some people, it's gross. And people that aren't experiencing that, they freaking love this stuff. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Because when you look at coconut oil based on its triglyceride composition, in theory, it should not be leaving the hair feeling dried out. It's composed of a bunch of fatty acids, 48% lauric, 18% myristic, 9% palmitic, and then it has oleic acid and linoleic acid in smaller portions, usually around 2%. And the latter of these are readily used in hair care all the time, and they don't give a drying effect, so coconut oil itself really shouldn't feel that drying. So I think the solidification point and the viscosity difference you know, looking like a lard versus looking like a liquid and acting like a liquid that plays into coconut oil sitting on the outside of the hair fiber, solidifying and thus feeling like a a dry straw-like layer on the hair. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. So enough about coconut oil. Since this is our sunscreen episode, right? Yeah. So you guys may remember a couple episodes ago, Perry... 173 exact. Not that many ago. It was episode 173. All right. Perry horrified our listeners, you may remember it very well, by revealing how he applies spray sunscreens when he's going running. By closing his eyes and spraying all over his face. Yeah, that's, that's, that's probably not the best way to do it. So as we look to warmer weather, we thought we'd revisit this topic. Let's talk about those spray sunscreens, you know, because after that show, I did get a little feedback and a listener reminded me that spray sunscreens are actually technically illegal in the U.S. because that delivery form is not listed in the not yet approved final sunscreen monograph. Now, I know I can go to the local Walgreens and buy a spray sunscreen. So it made me wonder, why can I do that? I mean, why can I buy a big brand name sunscreen spray and the FDA is just allowing that. Well, it turns out there are a couple of reasons for that. Now, the anecdotal reason that I heard from an industry sunscreen regulatory expert is that it's because when the FDA tried to crack down on this practice by manufacturers, sprays were already such a big part of the market and other unapproved sunscreen forms were technically already on sale that the FDA just wanted to avoid a big legal hassle, so they decided not to enforce the rule. (laughs) So that's the anecdote, but there actually did become official word from the FDA in May of 2018. See, it was at that point that the FDA released a new enforcement policy for sunscreen products that are marketed without an approved application. Like sunscreen sprays. Exactly. So, Valerie, as some background for sunscreens, why don't we just talk about how the FDA regulates sunscreens a little differently than cosmetics? Certainly. Sunscreens are regulated by the FDA through a document called a monograph. You've heard it a lot on the show, which just tells manufacturers what ingredients can be used for sun protection and what claims can be made based off of that. All U.S. sunscreens 
the core ingredient that does the sun protection has to follow the rules of the monograph. And because the FDA hasn't issued a final monograph, just a series of rules and tentative monographs are out there. Presumably, the FDA is working their way to an official final monograph, but we'll see shortly how that's playing out. Right. They have all these. If you look at the rulemaking for sunscreens, they have tentative final monographs, and then they have rules, and then have final monographs, but then they get revised. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I think they came out with a final rule in 2011, which we'll go through some of the things on there. Then they made a proposed rule. So that's not being enforced yet, but it's proposed. And then they gave an advance notice of proposed rulemaking, which is where they're just trying to gather more information on sunscreens so they can make more proposed rules and then final rules. And then don't forget, we have a draft guidance for industry, which is another sort of document in itself. So it's really quite a long, crazy process. But let's get back to this 2018 rule that this has. So before the final monograph, companies are are just following these tentative monographs, and sprays were not included in this. So in 2018, the FDA issued this new policy that said companies could avoid enforcement of the rules against certain forms, e.g. sprays, if they followed these specific guidelines. First, they said, first, you can only use a sunscreen active listed in the monograph and at the approved percentages, just like every sunscreen. Next, they said you can't make any claims like sunblock, sweatproof, or waterproof, or even a claim like all-day protection. So there's that. And then the third thing they said is you have to follow all of the requirements of OTC drugs, like having the right labels and directions, and then, of course, reporting any adverse events. But the rule also even goes on to state further specifically the type of form that will be allowed, including oils, lotions, creams, gels, and your favorite, sprays. sprays. (laughs) Interestingly, some of the forms that the FDA still doesn't allow include shampoos, body washes, powders, towelettes, and wipes. Yeah, so you won't be seeing, uh, I don't know, baby sunscreen wipes anytime soon? (laughs) Yeah, hopefully not. (laughs) Yeah. Now, for sprays, I should note that the FDA does require the manufacturers to have additional labeling on it. They require specific directions and a warning that says, and this is the important part, do not spray directly into the face. Spray on hands, then apply to the face. Oh, gosh, you are bad. You rule breaker. So even the FDA is telling me that that is a dumb way to apply sunscreen. So And of course, I am not going to do it that way any longer. So don't spray. I am just visualizing you. You know, the FDA just says, like, right there, like, do not do this. But it's it's worked for you, right? Yeah. I mean, mostly I wear a hat, so I don't get a lot of sun. Yeah, run at night. That's my my advice, right? So the bottom line is, there you have it. While technically spray sunscreens remain against the rules, the FDA is not going to enforce those rules as long as you follow the other rules that they laid out in their latest publication about sunscreens. Now I'm going to provide a link to the latest FDA sunscreen rules in the show notes for anyone who's interested in that kind of document. And the great news is all this stuff is available on the FDA website, their final rule, their proposed rule, which limits sunscreens at 50 plus which is why you still see sunscreens labeled SPF 70. It's because the 50 plus limitation is still a proposed rule. And you'll even see the advance notice of proposed rulemaking on there. Everything's right there, which is uh, great about the FD, that transparency about what they expect. 
Yeah, they the ungrade part is it's written in lawyer ease, so you kind of <laughs> need a law decree to understand it. <laughs> yeah. All right, are you ready to move into questions? Sure. Our first question comes from Paula. She wants to know what is the level of SPF, some protection factor, that should be used for our face every day? Joyce, another listener, also asked, how do you choose the right sunscreen? Is the SPF and makeup effective? I think it's great that we have a lot of the same types of questions and we can cover this um, all in one episode. And if you're not Paula and Joyce and you ask this question, thank you for asking it. SPF is an acronym for sun protection factor, and it's a numerical value that you see listed on a bottle in the United States, Canada, most of Europe, many parts of the world that indicates how much protection is provided by a sunscreen product, not to the amount of time you spend into the sun, but to the amount of solar exposure you have versus if you weren't wearing the product at all. So for example, if I wore a product labeled SPF 15 on half my face under ideal conditions, and I didn't put anything on the other half of my face, it would take me longer to burn on the side with the sunscreen than on the side that has no product. That is a measurement a display of this cream is providing me some protection. You would hope so anyway, otherwise it's yeah. kind of a worthless product. <laughs> yeah. Higher SPF values intuitively provide higher protection against sunburn. And as I mentioned a second ago, the SPF number is not necessarily related to time. So an SPF of 15 doesn't necessarily provide you 15 times more the amount of sun protection, but it's about the amount of sun you're being exposed to. And those factors are what time of day is it? Are you going out when the sun is the highest? What elevation are you at? What latitude are you at on the earth? Are you closer to the equator, further from the equator, etc.? And when we're talking about sunburn and sun protection, we're typically talking about sunburn caused only by UVB radiation. That's just one type of ray that the sun puts out. If you need protection from UVA radiation, that's not typically measured in the sun protection factor, but that's denoted by the term broad spectrum which means the sunscreen protects against both UVA and UVB radiation. And if a sunscreen isn't labeled broad spectrum, that means it wasn't validated to protect against UVA radiation, and you can't assume that it does. As an aside, the UVB is the one responsible for burning your skin, and then the UVA is the one that's responsible for giving you a tan. But UVA also has been implicated in skin cancer, so there's that. (laughs) So you don't want either of them to get it on your skin. No, not at all. And Paula's already yelling at us to just give her the tip already. So the reason <laughs> right, I'm giving you all this background information is so that you understand how some protection factors are calculated and how you can determine what number is right for you. So they're calculated through a specific test. I'm not going to go through all the nitty gritty and the details. It, it can get very complex, but basically a standardized amount of product two milligrams of product per centimeter squared is applied to skin and a control panel next to it has no product applied to skin and they apply a standardized amount of solar radiation and the SPF factors then determine after the skin exhibits redness or burning. And again, there's a lot of factors that go into it. It's not this simplified, it's pretty complex. So those are done right on human beings, right? So right on human people, beings. Yeah, there are people some people out there who are just like, hey, burn me and pay me. <laughs> Want to make an easy 20 bucks? Burn yourself. So what does that mean, right? So the, the number on the bottle, SPF 15, tells you that on one centimeter squared of skin, if you put two milligrams of product on there, 
you had a sun protection factor of 15, but what about your whole face? How much product is that? Well, it turns out there's actually a ton of calculations on the internet where people have attempted to measure their whole face. Like the square foot area of your face? <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah, like this is my forehead, my jawline, etc. And then they've said, okay, well to cover two milligrams per centimeter squared, to achieve the SPF factor that's written on the package, how much sunscreen do I need? And roughly the quantities are anywhere from a sixth of a teaspoon, a quarter of a teaspoon, even as small down as an eighth of a teaspoon. Of course, it depends on your face size, but those calculations people are doing, they're finding out that actually that's pretty true. And this number was extracted from the SPF testing methodology. Maybe we could provide a Reddit link to this very interesting set of calculations that this person did. I was like, wow, you have a ton of time. <laughs> and uh, great ability to measure the centimeter squared size of your face. So point being, every face is different to whether you need half a teaspoon, a quarter of a teaspoon, whatever. But I think it's the concept is good enough to illustrate a point that you're only achieving the advertised SPF value on the container when you've applied the product in a way that adequately covers the skin to two milligrams per centimeter squared. That's the only way you're gonna hit the target SPF that's listed on the bottle. I think something to point out is that most people probably don't use enough. It's a lot more sunscreen than you think. Oh, for sure. We even had a, a question come in where someone said, you know, I, I don't use that proper amount of sunscreen on my face, so can I use a higher SPF and less amount and still get protection? And the answer is the protection you get on the bottle is based on applying two milligrams per centimeter squared. So the SPF value is important, sure, but I think even more important is proper application. Ask yourself, is the product I'm applying in sufficient quantity to provide this SPF protection, knowing that it was tested for two milligrams per centimeter squared. And if the product is a liquid foundation or even makeup that has an SPF value, you're probably not applying enough to get the advertised coverage. So I think focus on proper application and then you can focus on the level next. Now the FDA recommends a minimum of SPF 15. If you're fair, SPF 30, that's what I wear. It's important to use a broad spectrum sunscreen to protect both from UVA and UVB rays. And the FDA even says that any sunscreen that's not SPF 15 or not broad spectrum has to carry a warning that says skin cancer, skin aging alert. Spending time in the sun increases your risk of skin cancer and early aging. This product has been shown only to help prevent sunburn, not skin cancer or early skin aging. And so of course you wanna make sure at you at least have that covered. What's your SPF value, Perry? You know what, I just go right for the SPF 50. One of the things that uh, cosmetic chemists uh, complain about is the the disingenuousness of like an SPF 50 and SPF 100, where, you know, in consumers' brains, the higher number automatically means better, right? Yeah. And so what happened was marketers would just up these numbers just so they can have this big number on there. But it turns out that it's not a linear system. It's mm -mm. a uh, logarithmic system. So an SPF 15 is not or an SPF 30 is not two times as good as a, a 15, and SPF 30 is not half as good as a 60, and 100 is not twice as good as home. So, um, and chemists kind of 
know that, but consumers don't. So we kind of look at it and go like, ah, that's, that's kind of cheating. But then I saw some studies that showed sunscreen in real use conditions, and they were actually demonstrated that there was a benefit to consumers that when they would use an SPF 100 versus an SPF 50. Now, the research is probably published by one of the sunscreen companies, but it does also make sense because of what you said here. If you put on the same amount, and one's a 50 and one's a 100, and you're not putting on adequate amounts, you might see a, a benefit from a higher number because of you're not putting the, the product on properly. Mm -hmm. But if you were to put proper application SPF 50 to SPF 100, you're not going to see that uh, demonstrable of a benefit. Exactly. And, and that's still the case. So the bottom line is just put the sunscreen on properly. <laughs> that's half the battle. All right. We got a question from Nicole. Nicole asks, why hasn't the FDA approved the new sunscreen filters available in Europe and Asia like uh, Uvenil? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm terrible at saying these things. <laughs> Uvenil and Tinosorb. And also, she wants to know is when can we expect these to be available in the United States? Well, Nicole, a fabulous question. And the answer all boils down to one thing, politics. You see, the EU has approved 27 sunscreens, while the U.S. has only 16. And of those 16, only eight of them are actually still used. And interestingly, I saw a talk in Florida where it was described how few of those sunscreens are actually used now, too. And so with Hawaii banning sunscreens because of reefs, you're cutting down the amount available even further, and pretty soon we're going to have almost no sunscreens <laughs> available. And actually, of those eight, only two can block UVA. So half of the ones approved in the EU, but not in the U.S., also will block UVA. So it would really open up some formulation options for cosmetic chemists if they would approve these extra sunscreens. Now, the reasons that they're not approved is basically because the FDA looks at sunscreens as drugs, while in the EU, sunscreens are just looked at as cosmetics. And drug actives just require a lot more safety and efficacy data than cosmetic ingredients. Now, in 2014, if you were following the sunscreen world, you might have known that President Obama signed the Sunscreen Innovation Act, and that was designed to get these new sunscreens more quickly approved. So the law said that the FDA was supposed to review the applications for the eight sunscreens that are available in Europe that are already on the market that people are already using. And these were things like amyloxate. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say these Do you want me to run through them, Perry? Yeah, why don't you run through the names of those molecules? I'm probably just going to make a bunch of stuff up. Amyloxate, bimotrizinol, bisoctrizol, dromit. Trizole, triciloxane, ecamsole, enzacamine, iscotrizinol, and octyltriazone. That was really hard. That, you know, that was hard. Now I know why we use trade names. Just make it easy. Indeed. I became a chemist because I like to say long words, but those words, come on. These were short. They weren't long. They were just short and, and strange A lot of Z's and structures. X's. Though. A lot of Z's and X's. <laughs> Well, and I think that speaks to the fact that these really are drug-type molecules, right? These don't sound like ordinary 
ingredients that we use. Exactly. Well, unfortunately, instead of approving the sunscreens, the FDA told the makers of those ingredients that the sunscreens weren't approved because they needed more testing. Specifically, they were looking for long-term exposure to children and pregnant women before they could approve them. So that meant that all of these companies had to go back and do more uh, expensive and lengthy clinical testing. I think it's going to take at least five more years. And the companies that sell these ingredients, they're just kind of getting tired of it. And so the reality is it's unlikely that we're going to see any new sunscreen actives approved in the U.S. anytime soon. Mm, bummer. Yeah, it does seem strange that with the safety regulations in one country, they think it's perfectly fine, but it's not good enough for the safety regulators in another country. And also, it's kind of weird because the U.S. is usually the one who lets a lot of things just go through. You hear that canard about 1,400 ingredients being banned in the EU. Well, here's a case where the U.S. is restricting ingredients much more than the EU. Typically, the EU is much more strict. It's just the bottom line that uh, the fact that the EU looks at sunscreens as cosmetics makes it a lot easier to get ingredients in there. And as long as the U.S. looks at them as drugs, it's probably not going to see a new sunscreen anytime soon. I think it's interesting that typically people are really hard on the FDA for not regulating cosmetic safety ingredients in the same way that the EU regulates them. And in the one instance where the FDA is saying, no, we really need to do our homework and make sure that long-term and short-term exposure is safe for people. People are kind of getting in a kerfluffle about it. I, th I think that's very interesting. And as some more studies happen on sunscreens and their ability to penetrate into the bloodstream, I, I recently read that there's more action going on there. I think that'll be an interesting unfold for EU regulations as well. Looks like we have time for one more sunscreen question. This one comes to us from Angela. And uh, Valerie, you have a little experience with this one, huh? Oh, oh boy. I got really fired up doing this uh, question. So Angela wants to know if there's a device for use at home that can show you if your sunscreen is applied appropriately. She went to the dermatologist and they had a blue light that showed sun damage beneath the skin surface and it was shocking. I've had that done too and I'm like, ugh, I need a total face transplant. Anyway, so... In doing some quick internet searches, there is one product that's readily available currently, and I'm gonna put available in air quotes there. We'll get to that in a second. Well, there's one product that you find if you do a search for a product like this on the internet. For the consumer, right? right. And it's called Sunscreener, and it's a device that attaches to your phone. It will show you a picture of yourself, what you look like under UV light. And the idea with the device is that the darker your skin looks, the more protected it will be based on where it picks up with the sunscreen. I saw the videos of it and uh, it looked pretty impressive. And, and it's it's just shocking to see because it's kind of a black and white video and then you see exactly where it goes, uh, the sunscreen goes on because it's blocking any UV light. It's kind of interesting. Exactly, and this device actually was featured on Shark Take. It's how they got a first round of funding before the device was fully developed. And they actually did an Indiegogo project funding a crowdfunding where they were able to raise several hundred thousand dollars to get the R&D done on the vice because it was still in the concept phase at the time. Yeah, I saw they had a Kickstarter program too. So. Or Kickstarter, excuse me, on Indiegogo, that's right. And I should know that because I actually contributed to this. Wow, it was $99, okay. <laughs> $99 for the device. And, you know, being in the beauty industry, I thought that's really cool. I don't mind paying $99 and the whole idea with these crowdfunding sites is that you give money and get something in return. And for $99, when it's produced, you get the device. 
That was over three years ago. I have yet to get the device. Oh, They're wow. allegedly shipping the Android devices. I've emailed several times to say, hey, where's my device? Because I, I think three years is a long time. And it turns time. out I'm not the only one upset who uh, doesn't have it. But uh, when I do get my device for my iPhone by mail, I will let all of you know how it works. Well, hopefully they hear, hear us talk about them on the show. and <laughs> That might speed things up. <laughs> So, Angela, I'm sorry that there's nothing more readily available. I know they're still trying to fulfill their pipeline on Sunscreener, but typically I don't think these devices have tons of success, but maybe down the road there'll be more. I looked at this device, and while it looks cool, I just don't know how practical it's going to be. Like, how are you going to use this while you're putting on the product, right? I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. It's, it looks interesting. I just I just don't know how practical it is. And typically, like, you're, you have product on your hands. Right. Because remember, you're not spraying it directly on your face. You're spraying it <laughs> no, into your hands. No, we are not doing and then, that anymore. And then, it, and then you're going to try to touch your phone. It it does seem weird. I'm interested just to see how it will fare. That, that's why I donated sure. and believed in the device. And I'll actually just believe it now when I see it. But... Um, <laughs> Well, you know what? I've, I've thought of this, and I, more practical than this device, are, I think, are those colored sunscreens. For example, yeah. Coppertone has a kid's color block disappearing sunblock spray, which it goes on one color, and then it goes on invisible when the product dries. Yeah, that's cool. I was curious about this, so I looked into how this might work, and according to a patent that was granted back in 2001... They use a water-soluble dye or a blend of water-soluble dyes, and the color substantially disappears when the sunscreen emulsion dries after it's spread on the skin or, or just rubbed in, right? And to me, that just seems more practical because you can actually see the colored cream on your skin, so you're going to know where it is. Yeah, so the, that patent provided there's no additional patents on similar technologies or improvements to the technology. I uh, was in 2001, so that's long lapsed. I wonder why that hasn't really caught on. No one wants to spread green goop on themselves. I mean, that's probably it. I'm not good at predicting what technologies are great. I used to think that Olean, uh, which was a fat replacement from um, potato chips, was going to like... Olestra. Revol- <laughs> that was called Olestra too, right? Right. That was the other... Yeah. I thought it was going to revolutionize the potato chip business, but it didn't It didn't go anywhere. So Yeah, that did. I actually thought about that a few weeks ago. I was like, what happened to that ingredient? That really crashed. Yeah. That just goes to show you that I'm just not good at predicting what technologies are being good. Yeah, instead of Chunky Pickup, you should be Trendsetter Perry or Perry Domus or something like that. (laughs) Perry Domus. Yeah, well, we're out of time, guys. Next time, we're going to take a look at broccoli seed oil, whether there are efficacious natural hair products. And, Perry, anything else? Uh, And other questions that you send in. And speaking of questions, if you want to ask a question about beauty products, you can just click the link in the show notes or record one on your phone and send to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. We actually have uh, a few recorded ones that we're going to get to on the show definitely next time. And now we've got enough recorded ones. We're going to have at least one recorded question on uh, all the upcoming shows. So... Yeah, so if you want to get your questions answered, feel free to contact us. Guys, we love the audio questions. It's super easy to do if you have an iPhone or an Android. There's this voice memos app. You can just record it right there, attach it to an email, and send it to us. They sound great. It's like Christmas opening up the memo saying, what is this person going to ask? It's so exciting uh, to listen. And we will edit out the uhs and the ums, so don't worry about being professional broadcasters. We'll make you sound amazing, of course. Indeed. 
Well, thanks again for listening. If you get a chance, go over to iTunes and leave us a review. It's going to help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. And maybe we'll next time we'll read a couple of those new ones. So that yeah, happen. that's fun. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Follow us on our various social media accounts to see what we post during the week. On Instagram, we're at TheBeautyBrains2018. On Twitter, we're at TheBeautyBrains. And we also have a Facebook page. And we also have Patreon. Don't want to forget about that. So if you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. Uh, We're getting away from the advertising models slowly. And we don't do paid product reviews, so this is a way that you can support the show. If you appreciate what we do, head on over to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and support the show like these patrons, Emily D, Kimberly R, Kimberly C, Mario, Lauren S, and Magdalena. A couple of the new ones there. Ooh, thanks guys for contributing. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we're new to Patreon, but we are going to have a special bonus information for supporters there. I haven't figured out what it is, but you know, maybe a live Q&A session, some extra podcast episodes, and I think I've got some extra copies of our signed books. So, a signed book. But I don't know, we'll figure that out shortly. So, if you feel like supporting the show, go do it over there. Thanks again for listening and remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks everybody. Kittens!